Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 9th of February 2012. For newcomers, as always, help yourself to the free audios available at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and hopefully by going through them you'll understand this system uh, that is a global system, it overrides it's all national governments, it has members inside governments obviously, has had for pretty well a hundred years and uh, how, how this system, this organization really of big foundations, uh, international bankers, uh, decided a long time ago they were not going to let us have democracy, but they would use democracy on the public to make them think they had it. And, uh, and how they would use it also to bring the world into the same system, which really is a new system altogether. It's, not, it's post-democratic, in fact, according to one of the think tanks uh, that uh, is employed by the Royal Institute of International Affairs in the United Nations. The Club of Rome were post-democratic, were post-consumer, and the world they want to bring in is this, the planned society, basically. Bring down the population and make the peasants more amenable to be handled by experts, which is already here to, for the general public, and uh, and how to make things more efficient. Everything's based on efficiency, and again, uh, it's all to do with less consumption all around. Almost a wartime measures. We had it too good to declare at the top, well, they should be raking in uh, billions and trillions more and profits every year. We're just consuming too much, and they want more to tax off of you. And, of course, government is completely in a fascist style in bed with the corporations. The feudal system that Carl Quigley talked about. So the audios will explain it to you. A lot of books are to be read by, by the guys who helped design the system. A lot of them are dead now. Uh, but we are living through the parts that they actually designed, all the different characters involved. So it goes on and on, this new world order, as they say, as they make it new all the time. And uh, remember, too, you're the audience that bring me to you. You can help me uh, tickle back uh, back and uh, along here by buying the books and discs I have at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can still use a personal check or send cash or use an international postal money order to order and across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal. And straight donations are awfully welcome. We know, and what we do here, really, or I do, is, um, is, is and the listeners, of course, know this, so is a we, uh, we know that uh, things are going down fast now, and uh, everyone's been made dependent upon the Internet, and this is, they couldn't bring in this global system, in fact, without the computer. That was the last thing that had to bring out was the computer. And they planned that back in the 50s, believe it or not. You know, in the 60s, they showed you computers, just like desktop computers. When, when all the other uh, television exposés and computers were showing you massive rooms with these big tape things going around, they actually had desktop computers. And they showed them on television in Britain and other countries from Japan where you didn't even have to type anything in. You could speak to them in any language, and, and then up would come whatever you were looking for. So really, they've had this technology for an awful long time. 
They're always miles ahead of any stuff they give to us as the latest whatever. And they use the technology against us. And they could never do all of this, never, without the computer. Most folk put all their personal information up on a daily basis. Uh, everyone's got a, a profile made of them, personality profile, regardless if they don't put much up at all. And um, the whole idea is to make sure you're predictable in this brave new world system that's pretty well here. It's pretty well here, folks. But I try to chronicle it and take you back to the history, the, the big foundations, organizations, non-governmental organizations, all of which you, you, you have no say. You don't elect them. They simply appoint themselves to governments and tell them what to do. Technocracy, you see. That's really what it's all about. I've been saying for years. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix talking about this big system we live in. Most folk think, really, we're just evolving and everything's evolving uh, haphazardly and politicians rush in and, and, and fix the problems that arise, etc. Nothing is further from the truth. Nothing happens on any, any scale in, across the world that isn't debated years and years and years ago and, dra- and bills drafted up waiting to be used down the road, things like that. This article here is to do with uh, uh, the British government. It says it's about to unveil proposals to block the Internet for copyright enforcement purposes. Now, this is very deceptive because it's not just for that at all. The confirmation came in a parliamentary debate yesterday on intellectual property in which pro-copyright members of parliament had a little chit-chat, as they say, about the allegedly anti-copyright government and indicated their desire for the activation of the Digital Economy Act. See, that's the most important part, the Digital Economy Act. That's everything that you want to buy, uh, second-hand, whatever, eBay, the whole lot, taxes, folks. The Minister of State for Business, Mark Prisk, said that the announcement made on website blocking for copyright enforcement is imminent. He did not give any detail, but did hint that the proposals would be welcome. I don't know by whom. But he says, given the form in which he was making the statement, the word welcome should be interpreted from the perspective of the copyright industries and could include measures targeting Google and search engines. He says the proposals have been under development for at least six months by the telecoms regulator, Ofcom, and the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Actually, have departments, government departments of culture. And I've said that for years. I actually wonder why the, the communists had it in, in, in the Soviet Union. A few people are the culture. Why do you need a Department of Culture? It's to guide you into the PC cultures that they bring along until you're all compliant. Media and sport. And they've been expected for the past couple of weeks, according to parliamentary insiders. It's possible to tell that they will take the form of a green paper, which is the first step to legislation. Mr. Prisk's actual words were, we need an IP system that helps business and consumers to realize all the opportunities presented, which is why we're actively supporting the UK's creators and the creative industries, and why, to benefit creators, we voted in Europe to extend the term of protection for sound recordings from 50 to 70 years. So if you play anything at all, you have to go back prior to that and play stuff uh, that's all black and white stuff from movies or something. Uh, before then, before 70 years ago. 
a really important step for originators of music and other sound recordings. It's also why we press to introduce measures to tackle online infringement of copyright through the Digital Economy Act 2010. We're closely considering the issue around the blocking access, where to block access to websites that infringe copyright. We will have something to say about that shortly, as we'd like to continue to have a positive working relationship with any ministerial colleges, with my ministerial colleges, colleagues, and the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, and shall not preempt what they are about to say. And it says that Mr. Priss seems to have forgotten that it was the Labour, that's the, the, the left government, now the opposition which pressed for the extension of copyright term of protection, and it was Labour who pressed for the Digital Economy Act. And it's got links in this article, which I will put up at the end of the broadcast, I put all these links up that I talk about. The question which prompted the Minister's answer was put by the Labour MP uh, for Newcastle, Chi Onwura. She is now currently a shadow minister for business. Like, you never see these folk. Just, just kind of... It's a corner of your eye and they're gone, you know. Under the previous administration until May 2010, Ms. Onwura was head of telecoms technology at Ofcom. She spoke in favour of an anti-downloading measure and for support of the Digital Economy Act. The debate was instigated by the Scottish Nationalist MP Pete Wishart, uh, who himself is a, a, a musician and an open friend of the BPI. In his opening remarks, he bragged about having a ticket to the Brit Awards and showbiz highlight of the music industry year. What was interesting about the debate is how Mr. Wishart launched an attack on Google before turning his verbal weaponry onto the Intellectual Property Office and the IP Minister, Baroness Wilcox, as well as Consumer Focus. He accused the government and the IPO of giving too much support to IT industry lobbyists and even uh, that they are anti-copyrights. He further claimed the music industry are being dismissed by government ministers whose ears are being bent by Google. He came close to suggesting that Google could have dominated the Hargreaves review and only just refrained from suggesting that Downing Street is in the pockets of Google. Well, you know, Downing Street will be in the pockets of anybody that's got a lot of cash. They've already proven that. So anyway... Uh, it's, it's, it's more than that, as I say. It's a whole. It's, it's to do with the whole marketing industry. For those who want to buy or sell, or as I say, buy used, you'll be paying taxes on everything that's used as well. And that's really what it's about. And this article here uh, says here was put out by Integrity.com, uh, Monica Horton. So. I'll put that up tonight for those to, to peruse to see what it's really all about, because it's far more than just, just to do with the music, etc. It's everything that you people buy and sell all the time. Use things. Taxes. Now, this is an interesting article because we've all heard of the Genome Project after they'd done it all and everybody. They never told us what they were doing. They were doing the Genome Project for the whole human species, it seems, many years ago and keeping it all quiet and taking the DNA of all babies born for 30, 40 years and keeping that quiet too, because we're, we're all profiled in every possible way, folks. But here, this little article is quite interesting. It says, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has announced that it's launching a project to collect and catalog DNA identification data for up to 1,500 human cell lines used in biological and medical research. So it's what, they want a cross-section of all our, our cell lines, you know, and we'll get catalogued into them. And a notice posted in the February 3rd, 2012 Federal Register, NIST called for voluntary contributions of cell lines to be catalogued in project. They'll also have a lot of involuntary ones too. They won't even know they've had them taken. It says, uh, um, 
The data will be collected in a publicly accessible database hosted by the National Centre for Biotechnology Information. It's amazing all the, all the departments of government, eh? A division of the National Library of Medicine of the National Institutes of Health. And it says, here's what it's about though. Immortalized human cell lines are laboratory, I'll say that again for the heart of thinking. Immortalized human cell lines are laboratory cultures of cells that have been induced to continue growing and replicating like cancers. You see? You understand too with having all different types of, of genomes out there and types that we all have. We're varied. Uh, this could also be used for warfare purposes, to bring down all different kinds, for targeting them, for cancers. They're widely used in pharmaceutical, biomedical, and biotechnology research, multiplied and divided, passing from lab to lab, country to country. And then they go into what I've just been saying. The oldest such cell line is a so-called HeLa line, originally developed from cervical cancer cells from one woman. And that line dates to 1951. Since the biomedical research community has been becoming increasingly concerned about mix-ups, cross-contamination, and misidentification of widely used cell lines. This one that they used from the woman, Helen Lags, I think her name was, uh, she, they're still using her, her, her original tumors today. Well, going back a little bit here, it says, uh, immortalized human cells are laboratory culture of cells that have been induced to continue growing and replicating. I've, I've read an awful lot on uh, Helen Lacks, and, and it never says anywhere that they'd actually tampered with her cells to make them keep growing. What I do know is that uh, the, her, her cells could contaminate a whole laboratory of cultures, which it did in Russia and different places. sent all over the world, and she's from the U.S. So they can literally turn off the aging gene in the cells, the one that causes them to die off. And you think they can't do that in a human cell too? When you're still alive, eh? Anyway, the biomedical research community has become increasingly concerned about mix-ups. That's what they're claiming. Problems could, could uh, invalidate research results. The problem is highlighted by the work of University of California researcher Walter Nelson Rees, who in a series of papers in the 1970s documented extensive misidentification of cell cultures contaminated with cells from the HeLa line. She was con- This one tumor from this woman was, was contaminating laboratories across countries. Studies since then have demonstrated that the problem is, if anything, getting worse. In one survey, the German cell line repository Deutsche Sammlung von Microorganismen und Zellkulturen says found that 18% of human cancer lines sampled were misidentified. 18%. That's false positives and false negatives, you know, understand too. A key problem in date has been the lack of convenient, reliable method by which research groups can validate the, uh, the identity of their lines. The NIST project seeks to remedy that by building a database of cell lines that are reliably identified by profiling DNA markers called short tandem repeats. The same technique used in criminal forensics to match DNA samples. So we're all going to have this done, you understand. And if they've got your whole makeup, basically, they can, they can literally turn on a, a particular tissues or turn off it's aging process, and bingo, you're going to have rampant tumors. The profile analyzes nuclear DNA from the cells for STR, short sequences of DNA bases that are repeated from two to six times in a row. 
at eight specific sites on the molecule. It also checks a gene to determine cell gender. The probability that two unrelated cells will have matching profiles is approximately one in 100 million. So I'll put this one up tonight too. There's much more to it for those who've still got uh, the capacity to hold their attention on something for uh, 10 minutes. It's important stuff. Important stuff because when they, when they go to this kind of length to do something, there's some, always something else behind it. Big, big money, uh, a lot of time, a lot of work. It's not just to what they're telling you here. It's for, for more purposes than that, believe you me. And, of course, universities, etc., are widely used by government and the military for such purposes, too. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. This article is interesting too. It's about GlaxoSmithKline that gets all the big government contracts for 10 years at a time for flu stuff and doesn't work and stuff, all that kind of thing. Great marketers, obviously, and they put an awful lot of money into, we'll see, lobbying, which is a polite word for something else. And uh, it says, nervous GlaxoSmithKline pulls cash out of Eurozone to avoid a crisis. And it says uh, some of the money withdrawn has been used to pay dividends to shareholders, which rose by 8% to 70 pence a share. So anyway, what they're talking about is it might be a, a, a turn for the worse, and they're getting the cash out basically every day. They're just pulling the cash out every darn day, like many other corporations are doing right now too. And it says um, they've been withdrawing tens of millions of pounds from most of the Eurozone, excluding Germany. Since you don't have money in banks, you're nervous about, he explained. Some of that money is being used to pay dividends to shareholders, which rose more than expected by 8% to 70 pence a share, plus 5% relate to the sale of the North American over-the-counter brands. It says GSK has also raised the ANSI on collecting debts from Eurozone governments. See, the governments all made contracts with these private, you know, international corporations, these pharma companies, for 10 years sometimes. Especially in Southern Europe, GSK sells many of its drugs to wholesalers, but also sells some directly to hospitals. We've been able to reduce our debts in Southern Europe, and, and he says, uh, leaving GSK with a figure that's not scary, said Witty. He welcomed the European Central Bank's efforts to pump money into the banking system in the past six months, saying they've had a very positive effect on banking liquidity and confidence. So here you again, your central banks, your big international corporations uh, who have got governments and debts, I don't need massive long-term contracts for useless flu shots and things like that, uh, they're all working together to make massive profits. But the interesting part too, that's where you go down, uh, and he's talking about, oh, they had this before a few years ago, and they had to go down and pay their staff with basically, you know, just, just big bags of money. Bags of money. Cash itself. If you were caught with that kind of cash, and the cops caught you, that you, you'd been slammer and they'd confiscate the money. Where'd you get that? But they can, they can do it, you see. They can go to the doors of their staff. I'm talking the, the high boys with sacks of the stuff and hand it to them for pay and, and bonuses and all that. That's the interesting part of the whole story. And, this article, too, is, is about how the elites are and how they, they always breed their own, like, like Bertrand Russell said. 
Uh, and he said that eventually the ruling elite will become a, basically a different species because they'll know what reality is, truly is, as opposed to the fake one they give to the general public. That happened long ago, that fake reality, and it's ongoing too. But this is about uh, a bunch of city boys. That's the London, the city of London, the banking fraternity, some of their sons. After rugby, email goes viral. It says, uh, for four young city high flyers, the adage, what goes on in tour, stays on tour, has unraveled after a private email with their tour rules went viral. In the indiscreet memo, the former public school boys, public over there means private, by the way, who called their group G4, just like the G8 and the G20, drew up 13 rules for their upcoming trip to the Dubai Sevens Rugby Tournament in March, sitting uh, that stated cheating is allowed along with compulsory chants about how rich we are. Because they're all little stinking rich boys. Because they'll work for the big international banks in London, you see. The instructions also included mentioning parents' salaries once a day to boast, you see, as well as referring to obscene sexual acts. The men who all work for international corporations, they're not that old, included brief profiles about one another in the email that was sent to employees at global companies, including Clifford Chance and Barclays Wealth. Their antics could prove damaging to their careers after they included details of their jobs and employers in a mock CV, which means we around the world. So that's their f- form of fun, is, is sharing what daddy's income in, is and what, what your income is as the whole world goes through a bank-caused depression. Right. Also tonight, Sue, I'll show you another another more commonplace video now as well. Get trained. Uh, the where a cop uh, sets his eyes on you, you're going to get tasered at the very least and and kicked and, and beat up. And this is exactly what they did to a man in a diabetic coma in a car. So it's quite something to watch. Yeah. And there'll be no apologies. And of course, nothing will happen to the cops because. The message is to the public that the cops are beyond reproach. Whatever they do is okay by government. That's what it's all about. That's all it's all about. Canada better beware too, because especially the young guys uh, and gals, because um, there's bad batches, if you can call it bad batches, of ecstasy out there. And uh, and Calgary, uh, they've had different admissions to hospital. I think they've had quite a few deaths here, maybe eight or so, maybe more by now, uh, and along with uh, some places in British Columbia as well. And uh, it says, a pair of Edmonton women land in Calgary Hospital after taking ecstasy. And uh, this stuff is a super ecstasy. It's made with different chemicals, obviously, um, as a substitute. So it's far more potent, but it ends up killing you, <laughs> if you, you know, if you don't get any treatment. So there's that article put up tonight, too. Uh, plus um, a few other ones to do with the same topic just to get it through some folks' heads. Maybe you'll save one, one in a, a thousand from trying this. And also uh, a former ecstasy user who credits the Last Door Youth Program for helping him kick his habit. And that's Miles Murphy. So I'll put these ones up tonight too just to warn folk who are naive and young and, you know, pop the pill. And may or not wake up again. And that's the music coming in now. And I'll read some more after I come back from this break.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix. This article here, again, is about ISPs and new rules and so on. Canada court rules that ISPs shouldn't be treated as broadcasters. And it says here, Canada Supreme Court ruled that Internet service providers such as Rogers Communications Inc. and BCE Inc. shouldn't be regulated as broadcasters when they offer video and audio content online. The company's broadcasting law isn't meant to capture entities which merely provide the mode of transmission, such as companies that offer Internet access, the court said in a unanimous judgment. The ruling may enable companies such as Rogers to contain costs as they look to expand offerings of on-demand TV shows and movies, and consumers spend more time watching video over the Internet. The Canadian Radio Television Telecommunications Commission, which oversees conventional broadcasters, asked the Federal Court of Appeal to rule on whether Internet service providers should be regulated as such when they provide access to content, such as television shows and movies online. So, again, there's so many laws getting passed right now, and you have to really go through them to find out what they're really, really, really all about. Because, uh, you know, understand, too, when it comes to marketing, government itself and government rules and regulations, they try to put a, a nice smiley face on everything, which can give you an opposite impression of what they're really all about. But it would tie in with laws they're passing in Britain and elsewhere, too, uh, to do with uh, journalism and bloggers and, th- and things like that. They want to bring in common rules, etc., etc., etc. And so that's going to be interesting how all that pans out. And also that story came in January, end of January, about the 16 kilo consignment of cocaine that Mexican drug traffickers recently lost. They say it lost. We don't know that at all. This is a spin right off the bat. As turned up in a nightly place, the United Nations in New York. Police and UN officials Thursday described how two fake... Now, listen, this is a spin. You understand, if you want to spin something, this is what, how you do it. Um, the first part is um, saying that Mexican drug traffickers recently lost at the very beginning to give your impression. That's a premise for the rest of the story. You see? It turns up the United Nations. The second part is two fake United Nations bags containing the drugs. Why would they have to be fake ones? If it came from Mexico, there's thousands and thousands of stuff coming from the United Nations into Mexico with real UN bags. Anyway, which experts said had a street value of $2 million. Set of a security alert when they were delivered, apparently by accident, here again, apparently by accident, you see, to the global body's headquarters. You understand this stuff is used as a currency across the world? Since the bags which had the UN symbol printed on them were shipped from Mexico through the DHL Delivery Company Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, Deputy Commissioner Paul Brown of the New York Police Department told AFP. But the bags had no address on them, nor any return to sender details. Well, naturally, the sender wouldn't put his address on it, would you? But uh, who, who, who paid for the shipping? Somebody paid for the shipping. And believe you me, they're not stupid in Mexico as to mistakenly send it off to the United Nations. It says, it's my understanding that because there was no addressee, the DHL just thought, well, that's the UN symbol, so we should ship it to, on to the UN headquarters and let them figure out who it was supposed to go to, Brown said. But the two UN bags were obvious, obvious fakes. Yeah. 
and were quickly intercepted by security staff when they arrived on January 16th. And they contained 14 hard-cover books, which had been hollowed out to create space for the cocaine. The working theory now is that possibly it was never meant to have left Mexico at all. I very much doubt that. Very much doubt that. So that's their spin on, on what the big boys do and when someone gets caught, you know. They should have not been caught at all, probably. <laughs> this article, too, this was something I mentioned uh, yesterday to do with the new contraception and, and devices, implants in the, that young girls in Britain can get uh, without their parents having any knowledge at the age of 13. And so at least the mainstream has caught on to this one. And it says, we're sleepwalking ourselves into state-sanctioned parenting. Now, part of um, the Fabian Society, all the socialist societies, uh, Marxist societies, uh, and your banking uh, conservative societies, has always been to get this planned society on the go, where eventually they would decide, the state would decide who could marry whom. And... Um, and also to do with eugenics as well, of course. Eventually even said in some of the writings uh, uh, that you'd have to serve the state well to get the, the permission to to actually have a child. So it says we're sleeping ourselves into state-sanctioned parenting. And, it says, and then the woman goes on, this journalist goes on, to see how broad-minded she is about sex and all the rest of it, and tells her 14-year-old children about issues and stuff like that. And... Uh, Yada yada yada. But then she's, she's a fair advocate of the mantra that knowledge is power, nowhere more so when it comes to equipping my child in the arena of sexual relations. She's no prude. She was overboard to tell you this, you see. And then, then she says, um, she's open minded, blah 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 blah. And then it says, uh, it says, take this as a source of today's consternation. Schools and doctors in the UK are routinely giving 13 year old girls contraceptive implants. And because they're covered by various laws that forbid them revealing that they're doing this or even seeking permission in the first place, the parents of these children are left unaware that this is happening. And of course, they don't want you to have children. By the way, you have to go into the G20 and the deals they have made with China on population reduction. I've done it all. And China demanded that the West, as I always knew, uh, go along with the same policies till eventually they get the same one-child policy or even less, until most couples have none at all, if there's any couples left, that is. So it's now that we're taking small numbers here. Last year, 1,700 girls aged 13 and 14 were fitted with implants, while 800 had contraceptive injections. And it says, frankly, it's too early in the morning for me to be reading outrageous statistics like this. Uh, this is such a preposterous idea that it should have been booted out at the drawing board stage. So this is what has come to the state the state has now assumed the ultimate control, that of taking over the role of parents above and beyond the real ones. Well, I think this author should go, uh, this journalist should go and read Bertrand Russell because he was on the big world committee meetings. He wrote about his books as well, where he, he talked about uh, the experiments they'd already done to see uh, if um, um, they could leave the children with the parent. He called it scientific indoctrination of the child. The parents' uh, uh, ultimate uh, old-fashioned contaminated culture would not go on to the child because at school they would get the proper scientific indoctrination. In other words, they ignored the parents altogether. That was done. It says, it says, so we don't have to take the children from them at birth after all and have the state raise them. That was the ultimate thing they wanted to do. We don't have to, he says. He says, so technically this, the, the parent really now is just the economic provider for the child. So that's what you are to this journalist. That's what I'm saying here. That's what you are now. You're an economic provider. 
saves the state money. It says, sometimes it just despair and yearn for a return to simpler times when parents were responsible adults and children knew that. I cannot bear such interference on a mass scale. It's verging on the obscene. We must ask you what kind of society we have become when it's perfectly legal, desirable, even according to government who initiated the set the step that children, and that is what 13-year-olds are, are encouraged to take contraception in the first place. Well, <laughs> look, look at all the movies and stuff you've been watching uh, for the last 20, 30 years. They push the envelope every year. Before anyone shouts me down with, but we have come to the highest teen pregnancy rates in Europe, I know that what concerns me is why do we, well, and why are, why do you have the highest teen pregnancy rates in Europe? Never used to be like that. It's like, oh, look at every music television thing yet, you see. Look at every darn movie you see. What's it all about, folks? Hyper-promiscuity. That's what they said they'd bring in. Julian Huxley talked about it too when he was head of UNESCO at the United Nations. Anyway, it says, and what are we doing about that in terms of dissuading our young people from becoming parents rather than tooling them up to, to premature sexual experimentation in the first place? Because Bertrand Russell said, if we can get them doing this before even puberty, he says, um, they'll be hypersexual. They'll never stay with one partner to have a family. You see? And then he goes on to about some of the, the side effects of this stuff too, near the bottom of this article. And uh, there's quite a lot of nasty side effects it has. It's quite something else indeed. It says, um, The implant itself, inserted on the skin, can get lost by migrating to another part of the body, and removal can be difficult, might even be impossible, and can be extremely painful and cause scarring. And then it says, then there's the actual issue of placing foreign bodies into the system. These can cause deep breath, upper respiratory tract infection. And it says abdominal pain, sore throat, vaginal discharge, flu-like symptoms. Uh, here's the statistics, actually, what they say, for what they're throwing into these children. Upper respiratory tract infections, one in eight, get that, because of this implant. Abdominal pain, one in nine. Sore throat, one in ten. Vaginal discharge, 1 in 10. Flu-like symptoms, 1 in 13. Increased cramps and painful menstruation, 1 in 14. Dizziness, children shouldn't be dizzy, folks, 1 in 14. Back pain, 1 in 15. Nausea, 1 in 16. None of the parents were asked about this. See, you don't, Matt, the proles don't count. Remember George Orwell? The the proles don't count. Everyone's a prole. It actually belong to the ruling class. So let's not forget that psychological implications of the implant, including mood swings, uh, like teenagers, girls need assistance in that matter, and anxiety and clinical depression. There's even, depending on the length of the implants or injections that are, are used for, the length of time, the possibility, possibility of bone thinning. This is, this is teenagers. That shows that the state is sanctioning a campaign of ill health and our children and parents are blind to it. That is wrong on so many levels, and yet we accept it under the guise of law. That's quite aside from the fact that contraceptive implants, pills, or injections cannot prevent STDs or HIV. Neither are they 100% when it comes to averting a pregnancy. Personally, I don't care how many health professionals tell me this is something we should do. I disagree. Good for, good for her. In my experience, there are too many so-called child experts who aren't experts on the front line. That is being a parent. And yet they have the audacity to tell those of us who are how to do our jobs. 
No way, not on my watch. So, that's not a bad article, but uh, they don't care about your health. They understand that. They just don't want you to have a child. What happens to you is just too bad, you see. That's it. That's how they take it. It's all done by high bureaucracies that they see you as a number. That's all. That's all. And that's from the Mail Online by Sonia Poulton. And um, the U.S. government has created a new program that would enlist a local, all the local Internet cafes as spies for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That's not really new. Uh, it's, it's, it's current, but it's not new. They were doing this from the beginning. I remember reading articles a few years ago about the same thing. Flyers that list suspicious activities has been made, have been made uh, accessible to the business owners in accordance with the program, the so-called Communities Against Terrorism. According to the FBI, the suspicious activities that need to be monitored include the following, always paying the Internet fee in cash, <laughs> rather than with a credit card, using the Internet service at the cyber cafe in spite of having Internet access at home, so they already know that, right? and participating in non-violent demonstrations, etc. So if you're involved in non-violent demonstrations and you, you pay in cash for your coffee or whatever, uh, then you're suspicious, you're a ter- cyber-terrorist. People also suspect of being terrorists if they own precious metals, purchase flashlights, or even a seven-day food supply. An individual can be suspected of planning a terrorist attack if engaged in one of more of the listed activities. Internet cafe owners are then advised to gather personal information about the suspected person, such as ethnicity, languages, spoken, and license plates, etc. The recent move comes as the FBI has recently been trying to pass a new law in which website-owning companies need to integrate into a system for monitoring user posts. The system would also be integrated with popular social network sites such as Facebook and Twitter, the reason being, obviously, that's all part of the CIA NSA organization and always was from the beginning. <laughs> They always give your heroes, well, this guy's a genius. He did this all on his own. Let's give him $270 million to start it up. <laughs> what a joke, eh? But we fall for these jokes. Most folk do, you know. They really fall for the jokes. And then in, in Greece, there's no more left to cut. That's what they say. Thousands of Greek protests over the six-eating pressure from foreign creditors. And um, and that's true enough. It says... Uh, if we can't take it anymore, that was a popular chant coming from protesters in Athens yesterday during the protest against the country's austerity measures. That's going to come everywhere, folks. We're actually all under it ourselves. The International Monetary Fund's already advising the U.S. government and Britain and other countries as to how to handle their cash and their austerity times. This is an excellent article. CCHR, a whistleblower, Alan Jones uh, mental health screening of children and he shows that the whole idea of mental health screening is pushed by big pharmaceutical boys themselves. This is Alan Jones gained international press coverage after uncovering pharmaceutical industry payments to government officials for the purpose that's bribes folks they call it lobbying of implementing a national mental health screening psychotropic drug treatment plan in this video interview, Jones describes the, the pharma funding and psychopharma agenda behind mental health screening of school children. He's a former investigator for the Pennsylvania Office of Inspector General. And so you should see this video and there you, it's, it's nothing new in it. Most folks think, oh, it's from the, it's, it's official from the government. No. It's government in bed with pharma and they've taken the cash for it. 
get another Big Brother program on the go. See, you can't have anyone thinking independently. Heaven forbid, never, be an, never mind being an individual. The individual, the United Nations has said, is the world's greatest enemy. You've got to be calm, you know, and sociable, and put all your stuff up on the NAC web uh, sites, you know, like Facebook and so on like that. Sociable, agreeable to everything. Just like Brave New World. Where you get your Soma drugs. Keep you all happy. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding at all. So, I'll go to the callers now too, and uh, if, uh, it takes me a second to get this particular one up here, and load it, and we'll see who's there. Okay, there's Clint from Ontario hanging on the line there. Are you there, Clint? Yes, um, I am. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Yeah. Um, I have a couple things I just want to touch on. One's uh, a recommendation for the listeners first. Uh, one's a quick question for you and a request. Um, the recommendation is for a book called Agenda 21, yeah. and it's edited by a man named Daniel Sitars, and it's exactly from the meeting in Rio in 1992. Mm-hmm. And this book, I have that link, I think, yeah. Yeah, and it's, yeah, your listeners have not seen it. I know the I know the uh, the actual. Uh, document is on the internet you can get it but to have the actual book in your hand you can actually show it to your representatives in your town mm-hmm. and uh, that's the music do you want me to hold on a second yeah hold on i'll come back after this We're back, cutting through the matrix, talking to Clint from Ontario about Agenda 21. Are you still there, Clint? Alan, I am. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, again, the book, uh, I would recommend your listeners get it. It's at Amazon.com or any used book outlet you can find on the Internet. And it's a great book. And uh, like I said, they can use it. They can take it to their local representatives in their uh, town council and find the representative for Agenda 21 because every town has one. They do. I, yeah. touched, I, I talked to you about this before where they can get a hold of ICLEI, which is I-C-L-E-I.org, mm-hmm. find their uh, representative in their area. But the book really tells you what's going on, and, and there's eight chapters, and, and it's very uh, alarming. And the thing that's more scary is at the end of each little chapter, they show you the financial aspects of everything and the costs. Yeah. And it's overwhelming. Uh, and like every program they have here is upwards of 500 to 700 million, billions, like it's just insane. And, and the whole book, I would say, would total, we're talking in the trillions here. And of course, we are going to end up paying for it through taxes. Yes. Also, you have to take it to get back again to guys like Julian Huxley, uh, who works at the United Nations, who talks about uh, this. See, they, it's only now they're calling it Agenda 21. Uh, for the 21st century, but he talked about the time where they'd have to do a rural cleansing. He says we'll get most of the people out of the cities back in the 1950s, this is, and said it's, one way or another we'll force them off through taxations and laws and fees and all the rest of it. And he says, only, and, then, and then the UN came out only last year and said, and I read the article, that in about maybe 10 years' time there'll be very few folk left in the West and living in rural areas, they'll all be forced into the inner cities. Only the very wealthy will be able to afford to live in the country. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, another thing, uh, quickly. Um, uh, I guess uh, just uh, the question. Uh, I noticed like, the Queen. She doesn't wear a crown anymore on the uh, the change here in Canada. I think it's been since '08 or '09. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I, I always thought that that had something to do with the North American Union, perhaps, or just the global. Uh, You're probably right, actually, because people have no idea that Canada is signed into the Unification Treaty. Uh, the, the Free Trade uh, Treaty was the first one, then NAFTA came after that. We've signed five integration documents since 2005 to 2010 for total integration, and, uh, and it's, it's step by step. We've already combined our, our intelligence services with the U.S. completely, completely, uh, and bureaucrats in Ottawa can apply for jobs in Washington under the treaty as it stands right now, and vice versa. So we we're really are part. Of, so yeah, you can't have the, the the crown lording over the North American continent. You know. Yeah. Okay. A quick request too for for longtime listeners like myself and a lot of the regulars. Um, I was wondering if if perhaps for us, uh, considering your van of knowledgeable. Uh, expertise, so to speak, you know, with geopolitics and the political sciences and the geoengineering. Um, I think there's also some more to Alan Watt that you can a- uh, offer the average listener. Um, I guess I'm, where I'm getting at is like trying to uh, get get to the bottom of it, like who funded the, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and, and where did that all come from? And, and I've noticed myself um, through my own research and through my friend who I've talked to before, uh, Peter, uh, we've been at it for a number of years, and, and we find that we're always led back to the Jesuits and the Vatican and the Pizzo family and stuff like that. And I was just curious if maybe one time during the week or something you could set aside reading the articles and, and touch on some more stuff that you would know about and, uh, you know, maybe go from there for, for the long-time listener. There's so much history. There's so much history you'd almost have to do small classes uh, a week at a time. I was thinking of doing that. But thanks for calling, and uh, from Hamish and South Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, your God, school with you.